0: to see each of you here today. My name is Leland Eliasson, and Carol and I have been attending this church for about six years, and I was invited to about once a quarter bring a message to you all, and it's a great honor to be able to be with you today. We are, uh, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Last Sunday, Stephanie, our a great pastor, brought a wonderful message on the last of the Sermon on the Mount. And today, I'm going to speak on the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who read the last chapter of a novel to find out what's going to, how it's going to end before you start the whole novel, you'll maybe like this approach to the Sermon on the Mount. You've already heard the ending. Now, here's the beginning. The eight Beatitudes that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount all start with the word blessed. The word blessed means deeply and truly happy the isle of crete in the ancient world was called in the literature a blessed isle because reasoned the ancient folks it had within its shoreline everything that was needed to be happy now that's kind of a picture of what these beatitudes do for us they provide a kind of spiritual picture of everything that we need to be deeply and truly happy. And in this series, series on success and, um, what's the other word? Security. I knew there was another word there. Credit me for remembering there were two, okay? Um, security and success are, are closely related being, uh, with being deeply happy, right? That, that is not a hard connection to make. So if we follow the Beatitudes carefully, we will come to a sense of both security and success in this world, success in the eyes of God. It may not make a whole lot of sense to other folks who don't know the Lord and who don't respect the teachings of Jesus, but for those of us who try to live with an audience of one, namely God himself, it really matters that God looks at us and says, you are successful living the life that I have offered through my son, Jesus Christ. So nowhere do we find in the Beatitudes a, a statement that says, seek first happiness and all of your life will be fine. As a matter of fact, that doesn't appear anywhere. What it gives us are eight pathways of life, and it says happiness, true and deep happiness, is a byproduct of seeking something else in life. And I don't know about you, but I keep forgetting that. It seems to me that happiness would be a good goal to have. Let's find that Isle of Crete that we can move to and live there, and we will just be guaranteed happiness for the rest of our life. But that's not how it works, says our Lord, who is the greatest teacher of all time. And so uh, when you look at these eight, Think of them as eight incredible resources whose full potential you will not reach even if you live to be 100 years old and you focus on them every single day of your life. They are incredible resources, and I hope that that will become clear as we go on. However, it may be that you feel some resistance towards one or more of these Beatitudes right now. And, and if you do, that's, that's understandable, but it's problematic. On, on the farm that I grew up on, the car that we had ha, was a V8. And in those days, every once in a while, a V8 engine, when it's getting older, would, would clog up the spark plugs. And sometimes a, a V8 engine would only f- fire on six cylinders and it didn't have much power, and it wasn't much fun to drive. It's possible to view these eight Beatitudes as an eight-cylinder engine that drives your spiritual life, but if a couple of them are being ignored, then you have an explanation for, for why you're not experiencing the full uh, joy and blessing of following Christ. For example, One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. But if you've just gone through a really painful experience of having someone you loved and trusted betray you, and the hurt was deep, maybe the last thing you want to hear this morning is how to be merciful. Maybe you're saying, I'm going to stoke my anger as long as I can keep it going because I don't want to get hurt that way again. And, and if that's true, if, if you find as we go through these eight, in just a few moments, that, that you are resisting one or two of them, allow these words of Christ to speak to you, to speak into your life where you are right now. And it will be hugely important for you as, as you follow the leading of the Lord. In in one way, Psalm 1611 sums up what these Beatitudes are all about. The psalmist says, you make known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. When you and I live enjoying the eternal pleasures of God here on earth, we are experiencing security and success that is a hallmark for Christ-followers. So now let's look at them. The first four kind of cluster together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The heart of that first beatitude is that you and I need to own the poverty of our own soul. We, We have to come to the place where we say, I'm a mess inside. I don't do the things that I want to do, and I often do the things I... I don't do the things I should do. I am not as strong as I thought I was. My will is not very strong at all. And so I've made choices that are not good choices. And internally... I don't love the way I should love because I'm too preoccupied with my own stuff. And the 12 steps picks up on this first beatitude when it says we admit we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Happiness, deep and true happiness, is on the other side of a door that's so low you have to kneel in humility. To go through it. The second Beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We need to mourn over the mess inside of our souls. We need to be sorry for the wrong choices that we've made and that continue to complicate our lives and mess up our souls. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, says the Bible. And so deep happiness lies on the other side of saying, I am truly sorry. Please forgive me. When I wrote this down for, for today, I had a flash in my mind of the last spanking I received as a kid. What a miserable memory that is. I had been sassing my mom, and she hadn't told dad on me, and I had been getting away with it more and more. But one day I slipped up. I didn't know Dad was within earshot. And when he heard what I said to Mom, I tell you, I really got warmed on the backside. With tears, I went to Mom and said, I'm so sorry. And she forgave me. And I never, ever sass her again whether Dad was around or not. To be sorry for what's wrong inside means that we mourn over it, and we will be comforted with the forgiveness of God. Then blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Truly happy people are meek people. Now the best definition of meekness that I know in the Bible comes from the life of Moses when his older sister, she was six years older than him and three years older than Aaron, criticized Moses for marrying a Cushite woman, an Ethiopian woman. it may There may be a racial component there, but she criticized him and said to Aaron, do you really think we need to listen to what Moses is saying? After all, can't God speak through us as well? Well, God judged her severely and she was, uh, she was given the disease of leprosy, one of the most dreaded diseases in the ancient world. Moses prayed to God, pled with God, please heal her, and God did that. Now here's the thing. Meekness is the ability to take criticism without retaliation. It's an uncommon quality. It takes enormous maturity, and Moses had it. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, truly happy, because they will inherit the earth. Then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness is one of those great big words in the Bible. We could do a 10-week series on righteousness all by itself. That's how big it is. But for now, think of righteousness as God's uncanny ethical capacity to always think and know what's right. And when you and I have that in our lives, when we have rightness, the ability to make right decisions, seeing the difference between right and wrong, we will, and we hunger after that, God gives it to us. The other word that you can use for righteousness is justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they will be filled with the capacity to live justly in this world. And justice is the, the ability to see what's wrong and to do something about it in, in, in our lives. Then, number seven, verse seven that is, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, Grace is giving more than we deserve. Mercy is not implementing the full judgment in the laws of God. So merciful people don't judge others. They don't decide in advance what somebody else's motives are. They give somebody the benefit of the doubt. And and merciful people forgive, not just once or twice but 70 times 7. And by then, they've stopped counting. So they just give and give and give. Merciful people become fountains of forgiveness and how desperately we need that in our world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The capacity to see God at work is something that our church reminds us about all the time what is god doing and how can we be a part of it in order to see god at work there must be a purity in our hearts we must uh, set aside extraneous things we must see god doing something where nobody else sees god at work if you look at this world and don't see god at work then it's a world without hope right and people without hope aren't deeply happy They don't feel successful. They're bewildered, all kinds of other things. So pure in heart people recognize baby steps of growth in somebody else and celebrates that growth with with them because God is at work. The next beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. When is the last time somebody said, boy, you must be a child of God? Don't worry if you don't have a good At least I don't, nobody's ever said that to me. And so I'm not, that's not a judging statement. It's just that it's an incredible label, isn't it? Jesus was called the Son of God. He was the champion peacemaker. Jesus enables us to have peace with God and to have peace with one another and to seek peace in our world. Peacemakers are very uncommon today. I'm glad we've got Tim Herzog here. He is a trained peacemaker. I learned about that when we served on the leadership team together. And it's a, it's a truly important thing to do. And and it's desperately needed in our world. I, uh, I googled fist fights and church. I got 580,000 hits. Now let's assume that half of those are duplications. Tim, you've got a lot of work to do. And and bless you as you do it because it's a it's a big challenge. The church hasn't done so well in making peace even churches with each other. That's why this unity service for Lent is so important it wasn't a part of my childhood we we had a bunch of churches that were silos separated from one another and sometimes we threw stones at one another to prove that the other was wrong and we were right but there's much wisdom to the lenten process of preparing ourselves to think about the death and resurrection of jesus and i'm glad we're doing it together okay so those are the 8 oh then one more Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being persecuted for wise judgments, for doing what's right, is the notion here. Just because somebody criticizes you severely doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. It may be because you're doing something right. And when you know that inside, then you have this sense of well-being. Well, they don't understand, but but I'm not going to take it personally because they don't get it, so I'm going to go on with my life. To be rejected and judged because you have wise judgments and love what's right, says Jesus, is a reason for deep and lasting happiness. Okay, so those are the eight. Now, what matters in this message this morning, from my point of view, is that you just do a check mark on each of those eight and say, I'm involved with it, I'm working on it. Certainly haven't arrived, but but it's a part of how I think and how I'm trying to grow. If I stumble and fall, I stumble and fall in the direction that these eight Beatitudes point me. I fall towards the Lord and towards what He's doing in this world. Then Jesus says this astonishing thing. He doesn't say, you can do nothing of importance for me until you perfect each of these eight qualities. As soon as he's done with the eight, he gives the mission of every follower of Christ. It says, and here it is on on the board for us, you are the salt of the earth, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot." Now I'm going to see if I can help us get back 2,000 years into a world where oxen pulled salt in their carts on roads that were known as the salt highway. Salt was a precious commodity. Um, I, uh, I think I've got a picture of uh, what, what salt was meant. If, if you go from Rome straight north, that in purple, if you, can, if you can see it where you are, was one of the main salt tracks. Salt was so precious that soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. A soldier who didn't do very much work wasn't worth his salt. That's where that phrase comes from. And was given half salary or less than what the person was expecting. And the, the, the notion for many about how did humans find the salt places? is that they followed the pathways that animals made to the salt patties, and there they went to uh, to find what the animals were looking after, and sure enough, they needed. Because salt was really important for three particular reasons. The first, it was a preservative. Imagine what it would be like if you didn't have a refrigerator, you didn't have a freezer, and you couldn't do an icebox. Palestine was too hot for for that, there were no frozen over places where you could get two feet of ice and store it for the, for the summer seasons. So the only way you could preserve meat was to salt it. Salt was a preservative. Secondly, and we all know this, salt gives, gives flavor. When is the last time you started eating a meal and you said, oh, this needs some salt? And it doesn't take a lot just a little bit, and it changes how the meal tastes. And finally, salt is good for your health. That's why animals would make a pathway to the salt flats, and it's why we all need some salt to stay healthy. Now, in our culture, we have too much of it, but but that's another story. 2,000 years ago, it was hugely important. So if you and I are going to be salt in this earth, we have to follow what Jesus was talking about. Our lives have to help preserve the culture and the neighborhood that we're a part of. We we should be giving a positive flavor to the neighborhoods that we live in. We make them attractive places rather than messy places. I've got a friend back in the town of Wadena where I used to go regularly. He's a Christian. He's been a deacon in the church for years but his yard is the biggest junkyard you have ever seen and the reason I know it is because a classmate of mine in grade school not a believer has gone to the local council to say will you help this guy clean up his mess well so he's not being salt in his neighborhood he's not making it look more attractive he's not making it a better place to live he's making it a worse place to live so when jesus says i want you to be salt he means you've got to be close enough to the world that you can make a difference in their lives and in communities and then jesus made another statement and it's about light he said you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, just as it's hard for us to imagine what it's like in the ancient world when it comes to salt, it's also hard to imagine what it's like when you go out at night and you can't pull a flashlight to put some light on your way. In the ancient world, if you were going to travel at night, you took a torch with you and you could travel until the torch ran out of fuel and then you were in darkness. You could take a lamp with you. The lamps in the ancient world, I've got a couple pictures of them here uh, that will let you. This is the simplest kind made with a place to pour in the middle the oil. And on the end was the place where the wick was, where the thing would light up. And there's another one that shows it lit. There you have a lit lamp like like a big candle. And if you were really well off, you could do this. You could get a seven candle lamp. It was just confirmed that this silver one is actually a rare ancient oil lamp. And uh, I mean, to go from one to seven, that's like going from a 15 watt bulb to a 105 watt bulb that's how much better that one would be but it was silver so it would cost something to have it jesus says i want you to be a light where you are and make a difference and the bible has a lot of things to say about light i think i have uh, some verses here it says god is light in him is no darkness at all your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path and jesus said i am the light of the world and then astonishingly looked at us and said you are the light of the world so let's take a look at a couple of the places where god's word is a lamp to our feet Here's a slide of a pathway that's relatively easy to navigate. And even if all you had was moonlight and no clouds, you could probably see your way up that pathway in the middle of the night. But imagine trying to navigate this pathway without light. If it comes through for you, on either side, you'll fall a long ways if you don't stay on that pathway. And Jesus says, in this world, I want you to be light, to help people not falter their death spiritually in any other way because they're in darkness, and they need light. They need to be led to Christ, who is the source of light. Your deeds and your witness need to shed light so that people Can uh, benefit from from all of that so the question that we face after this review of the first part of the sermon of the mount is so how are we doing how are we doing individually how many of those eight beatitudes have we incorporated into our intention about how to live the christian life and how are we doing as a church i already talked about the 580 hits on church and fist fights. And, and we live in a culture where, very often, we only hear the worst stories about church, right? And it's not that they're not true. It's just that they're not the only story. So uh, forgive me if I'm a bit nerdy for the next while. I want to tell you a story that comes out of the political science department of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. A young man named Robert Woodbury was sitting in a lecture one day, and he heard the prof who was giving the lecture say, I keep coming up with a, a, an association, a correlation between Protestantism and democracy. Now, in the values of political science, that's huge because instead of people having the freedom to assemble and speak and have press and educate and all of those kinds of things in a dictatorial culture, all of those things are shut down because they're dangerous. Dictators don't do well when people have a lot of information and know what's going on. So Robert Woodbury, who is the son of the former dean of the School of World Missions at Fuller Theological Seminary out in Pasadena was sitting in the class working on his doctoral degree. And when he heard the prof say that, and he'd been casting about for a subject for his degree for some time. He couldn't find one. And when he heard him say that, he went to the archives of Chapel Hill's library, and he found a 1925 atlas that identified every missionary station in the world, every hospital, every school, every. outreach program to create health in the community. And he said, oh my word, there's a wealth of material here. And as he thought about it and saw tons of relevant data, he said, wow, this is so huge. This is amazing. This is why God made me. Now, I know you don't normally think of somebody, you think of that by a a runner. Who, who says, when I run, I feel the presence of God. That's what he made me to do. But here's a graduate student in a university saying, doing this research is what God made me for. And I have to say, I have a great burden for our young people going into universities where there aren't enough gifted, articulate, highly respected profs who love Jesus and do the truth on everything else they're talking about. So the story I have for you is, what did Robert Woodbury do? He uh, traveled to Thailand, India. He dug through archives in London, Edinburgh, Serampore, India. He talked with church historians all over Europe, North America, Asia, and Africa. He traveled to West Africa. And his doctoral supervisor said, quote, He collected really rare, scattered evidence and pulled it together into a coherent data set. In one sense, it was way too big for a doctoral student, but he was stubborn, independent, and meticulous. Thank God for those three characteristics. Now, think about this. The big narrative about what the church did in the world prior to this study is that missionaries were aligned with colonial exploitation. And the big illustrations of the church doing this with South Africa, with its apartheid system. And you know how huge that was until it was broken up. And, And so Robert Woodbury began to ask the question, how can I demonstrate that this link between Protestantism and democracy is more than a correlation. See, there's a correlation between eating oatmeal and getting cancer. But it doesn't mean that if you eat oatmeal, you're going to get cancer. It's because a whole bunch of people my age eat a lot of oatmeal, and we also get cancer often. But one doesn't cause the other. They're just both there. So how? the question that Robert Woodbury had was, how can I show that the presence of Protestant missionaries is more than a correlation. And he began the journey. The variables include climate, health, locations, accessibility, natural resources, colonial power, disease prevalence, and a half a dozen others. So he developed, he applied a methodology. And and here's what it's called. If you don't have a light, you'll fall off the cliff, is what it's called. No. Okay, so his massive study of the impact of missions is reviewed in the January 8th issue of Christianity Today. I'm just giving you the highlights. You could be thankful for that. He applied a research tool called Two-Staged Least Squares Instrumental Variable Analysis. If there's anybody here who can explain what that means, would you come up right now and tell all the rest of us? What it is is a very sophisticated research tool that calls out variables like climate and what countries are in charge of the area, and it lets you identify the one issue you want to look at, and it becomes a repeatable research tool. Now, in research and political science departments, if it's just you who can get these results, that's not good enough. It's got to have a methodology that anybody who goes into this can actually do it. So Woodbury knew what he was going to do, and he started making presentations. He talked to university gatherings at conferences. Sometimes only two or three people would show up. Sometimes the questions were hostile. But one day in one of those presentations, a member of the Templeton Foundation was present. And he applied, Woodbury applied, and received a $500,000 grant to explore this issue. He hired almost 50 research assistants. They had massive database. And then began to uh, show the results. His work that summarized 14 years of research was eventually published in 2012 in the American Political Science Review, the discipline's top journal. The article has won four major awards, including a prestigious article award for the best article in comparative politics. Woodbury says this, quote, we don't have to deny that there were and are racist missionaries. We don't have to deny that there were and are missionaries who do self-centered things. But if if that were the average effect, We would expect the places where missionaries had influence to be worse than the places where missionaries were not allowed, but that's not true. Then he identified this interesting piece, that it's only the conversionary Protestant missionaries for whom this was true. What does that mean? It means that these are the missionaries who invited the people of the country that they were in to come to Christ and be converted. Uh, It was not true of uh, missionaries who were hired by the state. And, in fact, the missionaries sent by churches were often critical of the colonial exploitation that had gone on in the field. Now, what this means is that the research that he was coming up was was undermining one of the favorite narratives about missions being used in university settings. And so he did a summary of what he found. Here it is. Where conversionary Protestant missionaries had a significant presence in the past, areas are on average more economically developed today with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in the non-governmental associations. Well, the impact of those findings that had to be verified, and they have been by several other studies, are just huge. And he found that even when there were just a few missionaries, they had a profound impact. A missionary named McKen- McKenzie successfully led a 30-year campaign to protect African land from white colonial exploitation. In China, missionaries worked to end the opium trade. In India, they fought to curtail abuses by landlords. In West Indies and other colonies, they played a key role in building the abolitionist movement. And then Woodbury says, These missionaries didn't set out to be political activists. They were first and foremost people who loved other people. They cared about other people and saw that they had been wronged and wanted to make a right. So what is that all about? It's about missionaries being salt and light in places in different countries all around the world who made a huge difference. They were flavor people. They made the culture more attractive. They were preservative people. They made the culture better. And they were health-giving people with doctors and medicines and all the things that went with it. Thank you for listening. I don't know how many folks are asleep now, but if you could nudge whoever is sitting next to them, we don't want to embarrass them if they're really dozing off when this service ends. But here's the thing. When I read that study, I said, oh, my, it deserves a lot of attention. And it deserves a lot of attention, especially in this church, because more than any church that Carol and I have attended in a lot of decades of time in church, this church does more salt and light activity than any church that we've been a part of. It is an amazing experience we're having here today in this church. Listen, regular invitations are given, inviting people to place their faith in Jesus. That's how conversions take place. Last week, Christine described their mission missional community caring for recent immigrants. Two Sundays before that, we had a prayer commissioning to send Greg and Sheila Morford and their three girls, Carly Caitlin and Kyra as missionaries to Indonesia. Last Sunday in our community time, a single woman knew a couple standing in front of us because they shared time at the food shelf. And today, someone on the way in said they had just come from Hope Street Church Ministry to the homeless at Elam Baptist. And one of the missional communities has taken on the blight of human trafficking. And one of the most inspiring stories is when the prayer group went down and offered to have a prayer for the massage parlor, and they wouldn't let them in. And the end result was the Minneapolis Council changed their rules and regulations, and a number of massage parlors fronting as prostitute places were shut down. And the list will continue to grow as new missional communities are being formed. And each of those illustrates what it means to be salt and light so if we're going to have success and security let's go for three words lives blessed by god blessed in the beatitudes lives lived as salt in the world close enough to the world to make a difference you can't just keep it in a bag on a shelf someplace you've got to have salt out in the middle of the food so that it can make a difference, and we have to be out in the world to make a difference. And live as light, point people to the source of light, to Jesus, and then light shed on the pathways so that people don't die spiritually and personally in the dangers of this world. And let's remind ourselves again when Jesus was speaking to the disciples and he gave this message, he did not say, Peter, until you develop greater impulse control, you can't be salt and light. He didn't say, Thomas, you doubter, until you find it easy to believe, you will never be salt and light. He did not say to James and John, who gained the reputation for being sons of thunder, so angry were they so much of the time. He didn't say to them, until you deal with your anger, and your temper you're not qualified instead it's like jesus said no matter where you are on these eight characteristics i want you to go for it while you minister deal with your own growth issues you have this message in earthen vessels and you are called to a great and eternal mission here it is be light and be salt for my glory in order to advance my kingdom my rule my influence in this world. Let's go for it. I don't know about you, but every time I am called by the Spirit to be light or salt, I feel inadequate. I'm not sure how to do it, what to say. I need wisdom. So go with this promise from James. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously To all without finding fault, and it will be given you. Go and seek his wisdom.